Hello, I'm Kelly Proctor, the president of DMV Healthcare USA Incorporated. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast, RX for Hospital Quality. It's my privilege to introduce podcast host, Simile Miller. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of RX for Hospital Quality. I am your host, Simile Miller. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for those who listened to our last podcast, you know that we are right in the middle of our three-part series on the new revision to the NIHO standards for hospitals or acute care, aka. We are talking about uh, the revision 23-1. There is also a 23-0. They are essentially the same. The difference is one section in the standard under uh, infection prevention that has been admitted through 23-1, which we'll talk about a little later. I do want to let you know that for those that did not listen, there was a three-part series on the critical access revisions to the NIHO standards. A lot of the information is the same. There is a lot of information on those podcasts about uh, the advisory notice, the change history, other documents that are available to you. So I would invite you to go back and listen to those podcasts. Um, Even though they're for critical access, there was still a lot of valuable information that will help you navigate through the updates to the NIHO revision. Uh, We do have a special guest uh, before we get started. I think I should probably have her introduce herself really quickly. Nicole, thank you again for joining us, um, as you did for the critical access revisions. Do you want to take a second and introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Emily. So uh, to our faithful listeners, you may recognize my voice. I'm Nicole Hadeen, and I am the generalist specialist on the SAI team. So I'm going to be covering today um, those standard revisions that we typically associate with our generalist surveyors doing these reviews. Okay, perfect. And there were just as many uh, changes uh, in this acute care uh, revisions as there were for critical access. And I'm sure it was hard to pick which ones to cover on the podcast uh, because a lot of them are the same. There are certain areas where the same standards apply to both critical access and to the NIHO revisions, to the acute care revisions. Talk to me about what you have planned for today. What can we expect on this podcast? My game plan for today is going to be to share with our listeners the revisions that were covered on the Critical Access podcast that are exactly the same for acute care. So we're just going to hit them very quickly. I'm going to tell you this is the same Critical Access Acute Care. So then our listeners can go back, check out that podcast from June 22nd. And that way, today, we can free up some time to really cover brand new material that I didn't get to that's actually going to be relevant for not just our acute care hospitals, but really for critical access hospitals, too. So it's going to be a a double whammy. It's uh, really going to be beneficial for both hospital types. One thing that I do want to reiterate that I covered on the Critical Access podcast is that um, we have kind of some more general high-level changes that were made. Sometimes we had requirements that were only mentioned in the interpretive guidelines in the previous revision, but not as an actual standard requirement or SR. So we moved those to an SR so that they would be more visible and hopefully not be missed by the hospitals. 
An example of that is under dietary services where required policies and procedures were only mentioned in the IG, but now they're up in some SRs. Uh, we also focus on some burden reduction where we could, uh, especially where requirements weren't tied to a CMS COP. Uh, they wouldn't be likely to have an impact on patient safety, patient rights or quality. And I think hospitals will really notice that under the staffing management chapter. So what we did actually cover on the June 22nd podcast, let me just kind of quickly review that. We talked a lot about the quality management system or QM chapter, staffing management, a little bit in governing body uh, related to contracted services, a lot about performance data in the medical staff chapter, a little about dietary discharge planning and UR. So definitely go back and check out that podcast. Keep in mind, there might be some differences where the standard falls. So what I mean by that is in the critical access podcast, when I talked about determining and modifying staffing. Um, so that's a staffing management requirement under SM3 for critical access. In acute care, it's SM4. So basically in acute care, all of the SM standards are just going to be a plus one from critical access, but the content's exactly the same. In governing body, when it's GB5 for critical access for contract services, it's going to be GB4 and acute. Discharge planning, the changes are going to be exactly the same in acute care as they were for critical access, and they are even um, down to the same standard references. So I think our listeners will really be able to find, um, in listening to that critical access podcast, find the equivalent acute care standard really quickly just by hearing the title of the standard. They'll be able to find it. And I think that's a good point because we do have some significant uh, changes in the acute care NIHO revisions that we do need to focus on and why regurgitate what we already uh, covered in the June podcast. So I, I highly recommend going back and listening to that. And the quality, for you quality people out there, um, the quality management section, you're going to be very happy. A lot was added to align to ISO and then also some cleanup of some wording. So that's just, Nicole already gave that an example. I'm just kind Kind of reiterating that that would be a good one uh, for everyone to go back and listen to in the critical access because you'll be able it's the same in, in both standards and you'll be able to see where we're moving to from an alignment to ISO because I know a lot of you quality people have asked the question during courses hey why isn't ISO more predominant in that quality section so uh, yes please go back listen to those um, uh, just pay attention to the content not so much the numbering uh, that is given on that podcast. So thank you, Nicole. I think that's really, really important. Let's dive in then to the more specific to acute care changes that you didn't cover during the critical access podcast. So where would you like to start? Because this, I'm really excited about a lot of these changes. So what section are we starting with today? So I think where I'd like to pick up today is with some more in the medical staff chapter, because I would say that's the chapter that underwent the biggest overhaul. Maybe it's a little bit in competition with staffing management or, or QM, but it underwent a lot of changes. So throughout the medical staff chapter, we tried to draw emphasis to the difference between medical staff membership 
versus practitioners who may not be eligible for medical staff membership, but they still hold clinical privileges at the hospital. So what we mean by that is the non-physician practitioners like mid-levels and other licensed healthcare professionals like clinical social workers, clinical psychologists, registered dietitians, just to name a few, they aren't always eligible to be on the medical staff whether that's because of a state law restriction or the hospital has decided uh, to not allow membership, but they still have clinical privileges. And the purpose of calling attention to that with the updated verbiage is so that it's crystal clear that the requirements in the medical staff chapter still apply to those practitioners who have clinical privileges without medical staff membership. So you can see examples of those updates at MS2, SR5A, and SR6, MS3, SR1, MS6, SR1, SR3, and SR11. Really tried to make sure that, again, that it was super clear that, you know, just down to the, the name of the chapter, right, medical staff. We're not only talking about the official medical staff members, we're also talking about anyone that has clinical privileges. So let's talk a little bit about MS-6, which is appointment, reappointment, clinical privileging. The appointment part of that standard used to be located at MS-8 and Rev 20-1. So it's just been renumbered at MS-6. It will look very familiar to you. Uh, but then what we did was we took the content from MS-12, which was clinical privileges, and combined it there. So it's a combo standard now because a lot of it was so related and it, it just kind of goes together. Those processes go together. So it, it made sense to just cover it at one standard. But there is a new requirement, new, but maybe not so new in practice. I, I think that at least with SR9, um, the hospitals are doing this. So at SR9, the recommendations by the medical staff for these appointments and reappointments and clinical privileges, they need to be in writing with the supporting rationale. So don't overcomplicate that supporting rationale aspect. That could be as simple as just docu documenting that they met the criteria that's on their delineation of privileges. But the other scenarios that I want our hospitals to think about here is for situations where the med staff are recommending additional or special privileges for a physician or another licensed healthcare professional that have never been granted before, or maybe it's a brand new service line offered at the hospital and the med staff are determining what are the criteria for us to grant these privileges for this new service line. Those are really important considerations when the medical staff are doing their review of criteria and determining whether that practitioner meets the criteria or, you know, can the full set of privileges be granted or do they need to be modified in some way, even if it's just for a period of time while they might need to be proctored for a certain number of procedures or something like that. So. There may be a situation where there's something identified in that practitioner's file that warrants some kind of restriction. And those are really the situations where that rationale of the medical staff's approval uh, becomes more important. So the other piece that's new at SR9A is that if the governing body appoints a candidate or makes a privileging decision, that's 
the opposite of what the recommendation of the medical staff was. So say the medical staff say, yes, we want to recommend um, this practitioner for privileges and the governing body says no, then we have to have a documented rationale for doing that. And that probably happens rarely, if ever, but it can and does happen. So when it does, um, we need to see what the reason was there. I want to talk a little bit about initial privileging requirements. We did a little bit of shuffling around related to MS-11, the former MS-11. At the time of initial privileging, the medical staff need to determine and document any uh, need for further training or proctoring, any type of modification they're going to do to those privileges. That kind of goes back to what I was just saying about documenting that rationale um, on their recommendation for approval. Depending on that particular practitioner's experience and training, there may be situations where it's not appropriate to grant all the privileges on the DOP. You know, we, again, we might need the additional training or proctoring before that practitioner can do those procedures independently. About performance data, well, I'm not going to go into detail about all those changes since we already covered them in the Critical Access podcast. There is one thing I do want to mention that I don't think we covered there, and that is that when privileges are being renewed, revised, or amended in some way, that the medical staff need to do a review of that performance data in order to identify if there's been variation from the benchmarks or the criteria that the medical staff have already determined. So the medical staff um, should be using comparative data when it's available, whether that's state, national, maybe peer group, whatever it might be, using that comparative data or using uh, benchmarks that they have established, you know, because there may be times when you can't get a hold of that comparative data. We need to know when there's variation, we need a documented process to address how that's going to be A, validated by the medical staff. And then if it's valid, how are we gonna address this variation? So the medical staff, of course, determine what are those appropriate actions? Is there uh, some type of action plan needed? More training, proctoring? Do we need to amend the privileges? Any of those are um, scenarios that could happen. And I promise I'm almost done talking about medical staff. I think I'm gonna have to get a drink anyway. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> like I said, it, it probably was the, the chapter that had the most edits, but it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. So <laughs> last but not least, we made some changes to what was formerly MS-10. Now it's MS-9 and it's titled Continuing Education and Training. So hospitals are not required or expected to maintain documentation for CMEs that's required for a state licensure renewal or that maintenance or renewal of registration or certification. So think about, for example, board certification, um, the maintenance of that. They aren't required to keep that documentation since those are already subject to audit from those licensing or certification bodies. So obviously as part of the state license renewal, so many CMEs are required. Now, if the hospital wants to 
um, impose their own requirement or process to do audits, like random audits of practitioners, CEs for license renewals or board certs or other certifications, that's totally up to the hospital. Um, but for purposes of complying with the NIMO requirements, um, they're not required to do that. Okay, so what does that mean then? Um, what does a hospital need to do related to those CEs and training? Because the standard is still there. And I know we get a lot of questions from hospitals and even surveyors on what exactly would that look like? What do they need to put in place um, to ensure that that requirement's still met, given the fact that it really is kind of a, a double dipping of uh, compliance when it comes to the license for each state? Yeah, so really, you know, in addition to to saying you're no longer required to to validate and, and keep that evidence of those CMEs, what we really want the hospital to focus on and, and what's required here is to validate and document that the CE or training that the hospital requires is met prior to granting or renewing of clinical privileges. So Hospitals often have specific training or education criteria that has to be met in order for privileges to be granted, especially for special privileges. So that's typically included in the medical staff bylaws or on a DOP form or maybe a special privilege request form, whatever that happens to look like. So, for example, maybe in order to obtain for the first time or to renew special privileges for moderate sedation, the hospital might require specific training, a certain number of procedures that have been performed successfully with no adverse outcomes, et cetera. So what we're saying now is those education and training requirements that the hospital specifically requires, those are the ones that need to be um, documented that the physician or practitioner met that criteria in order to move forward with those privileges. This can also include other education requirements or training that's required by other standards, such as um, maybe annual or some other frequency for required education, OR, fire safety, OSHA bloodborne pathogens, restraint and seclusion, those education training requirements that are kind of scattered throughout the NIHO requirements, we would also be talking about those there. Okay. You know, something kind of sidebar here for just a second, something that I was just thinking is we were talking earlier about the documents at the start of the podcast, things like change history, um, fact sheets. And I think it's important that our uh, listeners know that those documents were released for this acute NIHA revisions with that advisory notice that came out on July 7th. It was July 7th, right, Nicole? Right. Okay. So that advisory notice on July 7th, um, you will see in there links to fact sheet change history related to the standard revision. Uh, I will strongly, strongly encourage uh, our listeners to make sure that they do review those fact sheets that came out with that advisory notice. The fact sheets list by chapters, all of the significant changes, and it went through some pretty, we had a lot of changes, um, given that it wasn't a lot about adding more compliance. It was more about cleaning up what was there, uh, doing more alignment to all of the changes with CMS. But there were 15. Is Am I correct about that, Nicole? There were 15 chapters that were revised in the standard? Yeah. So what we did 
<laughs> there were actually more civilly. I more think there? Okay, okay, okay. We we touched just about every chapter, really. Now, sometimes okay. it could have been just, you know, tweaking a word here or there. But we do have 15 fact, fact sheets. sheets. So what okay. we did was okay. we looked at the chapters where they actually truly had a different requirement or there were enough, you know, differences in the requirements that we thought, okay, this particular chapter will actually have an impact in the day-to-day uh, workings at the hospital. So those are the ones that we decided to do fact sheets on. Okay, and the fact sheets are important. You guys, I got to be honest, I'm updating all of our courses with the uh, new uh, revisions. So anybody out there who would like a course on the changes to the NIHO standards, we do have those available in education. Just reach out to your sales team or contact me directly. I use the fact sheets a lot during this revision. Those fact sheets are incredibly helpful. So please utilize those resources that we are trying to offer you to help navigate your way through these changes. And for anybody out there who was like advisory notice, I didn't get an advisory notice. Please go in. You can subscribe to our notices. We try to make sure that they go out to all of our primary contacts, but anybody uh, can receive the advisory notices. It's how we communicate to you a lot of important information, not just changes to the standard, which is key, but any memo that comes out that affects hospitals from CMS. During pandemic, we used advisory notice a lot to help to guide hospitals on how to approach different things. The advisory notices go out about a certification program. So lots of information happens there. And it is really key for everybody to have access to those advisory notices. So please, please, please go and subscribe to those. If you have any questions about that, you can visit dnbhealthcare.com, our website, for more information on how to subscribe to advisory notices. Or you could just click ask a question and the question will come in and we will send you more information on that. So sorry, did me to sidebar there, Nicole, but I thought it was important that our listeners understand what is available at their fingertips so they don't feel overwhelmed by what they're hearing on the podcast. So what what are we going to next? What's next? Yeah, so next we're going to do utilization review, just at kind of a very high level. So UR1 really sets the foundation for the UR plan and process and program requirements, SR4A through 4C. Um, and, And so let me sidebar for a second. I'm hoping that, you know, as people are listening, they can also be looking at the NIHO requirements, looking at those fact sheets, because if they're anything like me, I like an audio with my visual, like same, like same the, way. the whole yep. shebang for me. Yes. So yeah, yes. I would encourage them to do that. So when I'm talking about SR4A through 4C, they can they can really get a picture of that. So that already existed in the former standard, but now each of those review types at 4A through 4C is described in detail in new UR standards at UR 2, 3, and 4. So at UR 2, you're going to see um, the requirements for the admission review. That review type didn't previously have its own dedicated standard. Now it does. UR4, Review of Professional Services, same thing there. That review type didn't have its own dedicated standard before. It was just kind of thrown in, meshed together um, with a couple different review types. And then overall, in the UR chapter, we enhanced the IG and the SG for all of the standards. So um, hopefully that will help um, all of the hospitals 
better understand what's required for UR because it can be a little bit mysterious at times. <laughs> I like that, mysterious. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I couldn't think of the word. Yeah, we're just going to go with mysterious. Um, so I'm going to jump into the dietary chapter. I did cover some information on that already in that June podcast related to the nutritional risk screening that's included at DS2. But what I want to mention today is actually a question that I've had come up a few times in the Dropbox since we released the revised requirements. So the Dropbox is really one of the primary ways that we kind of get clued in on <laughs> maybe we need to word something differently or uh, we had a poor choice of words and you know we're human that happens some things get translated in a way we don't mean for them too so in the interpretive guidelines we included that these requirements related to dietary apply to all inpatients and those patients and outpatient status including the provision of observation services and i'm using my air quotes here whose stay is sufficiently long that they must be fed now, that actually comes straight from the CMS State Operations Manual for that related COP. So the question that I've had is what constitutes an outpatient area where patients need to be screened? And does this apply like to ER patients? So my response to that is the primary intent here is for patients and observation patients. ER patients wouldn't routinely be expected to be included in that screening. But the hospital should consider if there are any special circumstances where screening might become relevant, maybe patients who are being held in the ER for an extended period of time because they're waiting on a placement or transfer to another facility. So here's the plug for ISO. Use that risk-based thinking and Clause 8 in ISO to determine, you know, what are the situations where we, we really need to think about doing this screening and how are we going to operationalize that. A little bit more on changes in dietary at DS2, still DS2, the interpretive guidelines. We provided some clarification on who's permitted to order patient diets and the scope of dietitians and nutritional professionals being consistent with state law. And any granting of privileges by the medical staff has to be consistent with that state law. And the medical staff have to ultimately allow for those order writing privileges. So just because the state law for the scope of dietitians or um, other nutrition professionals allows for them to write orders doesn't necessarily mean that the, all hospitals medical staff are going to allow them to do that. So that is something the medical staff have to formally grant them those order writing privileges, just like they would be granting privileges, other clinical privileges for other practitioners. Otherwise, without those order writing privileges, the dietitians or other nutrition professionals would be limited. You know, they're going to continue to do their assessments and they're going to make recommendations based on those assessments, but they wouldn't be able to actually write diet orders. And so the diet orders would need to be written by the physician or provider who's responsible for the care of the patient. And we talk a little bit more about privileging for uh, registered dietitians and nutrition professionals in the IG and SG under MS2. So check that out. Another change we made throughout the standard where patient diets are mentioned, we clarified that the requirements apply to all patient diets, not just therapeutic diets. 
I think I mentioned this already, we took some mention of required policies and procedures, brought them up into an SR at DS1. Um, what else? Oh, we gave some examples of some uh, professional organizations and some examples of food service standards and the interpretive guidelines at DS1 also, uh, maybe to kind of help some hospitals out with those organizations or those food service standards that they can be referencing to make sure that they're doing everything appropriately with their processes. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So, Simile, there are a couple other chapters that I didn't cover on the Critical Access podcast that apply to both Critical Access and Acute. So, do you think everyone's still awake? Maybe we have time. I can just zip through them. Yeah, I think that's good. The fact that you mentioned ISO always grants you a few extra minutes in my book, oh. you know, and, and I'm sure that also wakes them up out there in the listening land. We have some real ISO fans. So, yes, please. I think we have about 10 minutes if you want to dive into the other chapters real quick. All right. I think I just maybe have two more things. One is for grievance. So in the patient rights chapter, PR6, we added a requirement at SR3A. By the way, New, I guess, to our standards made it more obvious, but this has always been in the COP and the interpretive guidelines. So definitely not new from a CMS angle, but we wanted to make sure we called it out more specifically here. Required process for referring Medicare patients, quality of care, or premature discharge concerns to the appropriate QIO. The hospital has to have a process to do that. And fun fact, that's actually uh, cross-reference to PR2, SR1, and SR1A about the important message from Medicare. And then another thing that we did was at SR5, talking about the written resolution of the grievance. Previously, it said that the letter had to be directed to the patient. We have revised that to say it can be directed to the patient or when indicated when appropriate to the patient's representative, because there are times actually when it wouldn't be appropriate to send the written resolution of the grievance to the patient um, in situations where they're maybe incapacitated, they um, can't make their own decisions, and they have a legal representative. It's appropriate for the letter to go to them. So overall, the interpretive guidelines were just really enhanced to align with that in the CMS COPs and to fill in some gaps and uh, give clarification to required processes. The only other thing I want to mention is medical imaging. I didn't get to that one on the Critical Access podcast. What I want to cover is about MI2 for radiation protection. So at SR2, and then in the interpretive guidelines, we say that any staff who may be exposed to radiation or working near radiation sources have to wear badges to monitor their radiation exposure. So obviously that includes the staff working in the radiology department, rad techs, radiologists, nursing, but potentially could include nurses in other departments, maybe like surgery, other clinicians, maybe even maintenance staff, just kind of depends. So what I want to point out here is the new part of the interpretive guidelines, and it's really a little bit subtle, so you might miss it, but it's actually a little bit of a game changer, a pretty big deal. So we used to just blanketly say 
that any staff who may be exposed to radiation needed to be monitored, period, without allowing for any exceptions, even if the state law or licensing standards were less restrictive. So now what we've done in the IG is included that the hospital is required to address in policy or procedure the types and the locations of employees who are going to require the monitoring for radiation exposure um, and have that policy or procedure approved by the supervising radiologist, medical director, radiology, um, whoever is in that role who is supervising, and the radiation safety personnel. So, for example, radiation safety officer. And the intent of this requirement is to address those variances across state licensing standards and regulations for who is required to be monitored um, based on the type and location uh, the work they're doing, their likelihood for exposure, how much exposure, and really just kind of changing industry recommendations and position statements of professional bodies. So we're giving the hospital's leadership and radiation safety personnel also think about the physicists too, by the way, not just the radiation safety officer, although sometimes those are the same individuals, but we're giving them the discretion to make those appropriate monitoring decisions for staff. And by the way, that allowance can also be extended to shielding practices for patients nice. during radiology exams. Yeah, so when and for who is shielding required because there have been um, changes in the last couple of years from our recognized professional bodies about patient shielding too, that basically uh, sometimes it interferes with the image quality. So, you know, risk versus benefit type situation. So as always, hospitals need to comply with any relevant state law or regulations that are in place. You have to follow whoever's more stringent, right? And those decisions that are made in policy and procedure need to be supported by those nationally recognized standards and guidelines. Uh, I, that was a lot, but I like that. Um, yeah. You know, the changes there regarding radiology really demonstrates to our core who we are. And that is really being able to look at, OK, what is the re actual requirement that's out there and how do we ensure that we're aligning with it that allows hospitals to then make decisions on what's best for them and what's best for how they comply with that? So that is a really good example of where we talked as a uh, as an organization and said, hey, look, we're, we're being a little stringent there and for really why and look at the evidence to determine, you know, can we align more with uh, those other requirements so that it gives hospitals some leeway to do what's best for them and to make those decisions themselves. So that is, you guys, a the best example of how it works here on a day to day basis for us is to constantly SAI spends a lot of time constantly looking at those requirements looking at other requirements, looking at industry standards, looking at best practices, uh, near misses the evidence to make decisions on, hey, you know what, maybe we need to step back a little bit, or maybe we need to offer some more uh, information for some of our standards because it's uh, causing incidents. So just love that example that really seems true to who we are. Thank you, Nicole for coming on and talking about the areas that fall kind of under the generalist spoke in the wheel uh, for these new revisions. Is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't talked about? 
I don't think so. Not at this time. But if I might do a little plug or a teaser for next Please, month. I'm all about, I am all about the plugs and teasers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in September, we are planning a webinar date to be determined. But, you know, as Emily was mentioned earlier, make sure you're subscribed to receive information. Definitely do that so that when we do release an email about an upcoming webinar, you'll be sure to get that email. So we are planning one for September where we're going to talk more about these revisions. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time focusing on questions that we've already had that have come in through the Dropbox about things that have been confusing or we just get really interesting questions in the Dropbox that some of them really kind of make us sit back and go, huh, I I wouldn't have thought about it that way. But yeah, that makes sense what they're saying. Let's let's look yeah, at that. Yeah. So um, we're hoping to address a lot of those. And I think that will really be helpful on a practical level. Yeah. And if for some reason, you know, because dates around here, everything fills up pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. if they are not able to get it into December, know that you can also hear them talk about this at the symposium in October, uh, the week of October 9th. If you have not signed up to attend our symposium, we do have a virtual option. So you can sign up virtually at a discounted price. And SAI actually has a session. I think it's an hour and 20 minute session on these standard revisions in which they will probably go into a lot of the same stuff that they would talk about on the webinar as well. Please, please, please attend symposium because in addition to that, it is two and a half days of a ton of information from your peers, from DNV. We have workshops available and SAI will actually be there live and in person. So you can, if you attend in person, you can pull them aside and have a quick chat if you want more information. Please uh, look into that. You can get more information about the symposium, webinars, advisory notices, all the things on our website at dnvhealthcare.com. And if you are not able to see it directly on the website, just click ask a question or request more information. And our response time is very fast. That is one of the things we are known for. We will get back to you immediately with any uh, information that you need. For this edition of our podcast, I want to thank everybody for listening. We will have the third member of the SAI team talking about the clinical revisions on the next podcast. So stay tuned for that. And as always, everybody take care of yourselves and please be safe out there. And until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. Rx for Hospital Quality is a podcast produced by DMV Healthcare USA Incorporated. To learn more about subjects covered here or to download any of our standards or requirements, please visit our website at www.dnvhealthcare.com.